Good morning, Compass family. We're glad that each one of you are here this morning. We're closing in on the last scenes of Christ's life in the book of Mark. And I have just thoroughly enjoyed the last several weeks. Uh, some new and interesting things brought out each week. I love the way that Mark tied in the Sabbath with the Last Supper, talking about both are forms of remembering, that both are used by Jesus to help us remember the things that he has done for us. And Glenn, what an awesome job you did at just leading us through uh, the Garden of Gethsemane experience and just realizing what lavish grace and love that Jesus is heaping on us and the decision that he made to go through with it all in that garden. And Megan, teaching us the story of Judas isn't really about Judas, it's about Jesus and his love. Today we see the contrast between one who didn't respond so favorably to Jesus' love and one who did. Today's worship talk is entitled, The Priest, the Prophet, the Traitor. We begin with the priest and the prophet. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity of spending time in your word. But Lord, may it be not just a time where we are spectators, but we, may we learn to become better participants. Participants in all the ways that you wish us to be active in a relationship with you. To that end, we pray this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. For the priest and the prophet, let me set the stage a little bit with a little bit of recent history that plays specifically into what's about to happen. We start with a few weeks back with the authority of Jesus being questioned more and more, and then Jesus escalates in response. Jesus escalates his provocation. He marches into the temple and he throws the tables over and he clears the money changers out. He argues with the Sadducees and the teachers of the law. He calls the Pharisees hypocrites, whited sepulchers, knowing full well where all of this will lead. And it does come to pass. They commit to kill Jesus, and they make a deal with Judas. Jesus is arrested in the garden, taken by night across the Kidron Valley. First to the home of Annas. Mark doesn't record this, but John does. Annas is an ex-high priest, father-in-law to Caiaphas, and the church fathers believed that he was a more trusted person to get their end accomplished, and so first they went there. Failing to get the accomplished goal, then they went on to Caiaphas. And just as an interesting side note, we won't cover all of this this morning, but think about this. It's nighttime. It's cold. Jesus was arrested in the middle of the night after staying up most of the night in prayer. He's had no sleep. There's no shuttle bus to move him from place to place. So he goes from the garden to Annas, to Caiaphas, to Pilate, to Herod, back to Pilate before ultimately going to the cross. So that's Jesus' journey through this horrible night experience. We pick up the story this morning as Jesus is taken from Annas to his son-in-law, Caiaphas, who is currently the high priest. Pick up the story of Mark 14, beginning with verse 53. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Peter 
followed at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Verse 55 tells us that they were looking for evidence. Now, this was no haphazard event. This was very carefully orchestrated. The Jews knew well that they did not have the authority to put Jesus to death. So they needed two things to happen. Number one, they needed to find some accusation that they could bring against Jesus that would cause the Jews to say that he was worthy of death. And then they also needed to convince the Romans that he was worthy of death because they needed Rome's blessing. So for the Jews, the accusation was blasphemy. For the Romans, it was sedition. And to this end, the questioning began. The setting was at night, of course, at Caiaphas' estate. Probably it was an outdoor meeting hall, banquet area, something like that. But let me tell you all that is wrong with this picture. In addition to the Torah, the Jews also had the Mishnah. The Torah was the law, and in the law, there were contained 613 commandments. The Mishnah was oral tradition, which added another 1,500. At work, we might call these standard operating procedures, or SOPs. Both the Pharisees and the Sadducees lived and died by the Torah and the Mishnah. In the Mishnah, there, was, there were very specific details contained on how to conduct a capital punishment trial. Here's what they were. Number one, the Sanhedrin must convene in the Hall of Hewn Stones. That was a portion of the temple that was set aside for this event. Number two, reasons for acquittal had to precede reasons for conviction. In other words, when they brought the prisoner in, they had to tell the story about, if he's to be acquitted, here are the reasons why we would consider acquitting this, this prisoner. If guilty, the Sanhedrin was supposed to reconvene a full day later. The reason that for that was to allow the Sanhedrin to sleep on it, to ponder, to think about, so that if possible, they might move toward grace. Number four, the trial must be held in the day, cannot be held at night. Number five, cannot be on the eve of a festival. Number six, not on the Sabbath. Number seven, the witnesses were to be specifically warned against hearsay so that they could only bring testimony that they themselves had seen or heard. And number eight, the charge of blasphemy required that the accused specifically curse the name of God explicitly. That was the only qualifying factor that could be considered in blasphemy. As you can see, clearly, justice was not the end goal of this trial. Moving on to verse 56. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days will build another, not made with hands with hands. Yet, even then, their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before Jesus, before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. 
The witnesses are actually referring to two separate occasions where Jesus talked about a temple being destroyed. Let's take a real quick look. The first one's found just a chapter back in Mark 13, verse 2. They're talking about how beautiful the temple building is. And Jesus responds by saying this. He says, do you see all these great buildings, Jesus replied? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Here, obviously, Jesus is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, which actually occurred some 30 years later. The second occasion where Jesus talked about destroying a temple was in John 2, verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. Here, with the hindsight of the benefit of hindsight, we know that Jesus is talking about his own death and resurrection. But without the benefit of hindsight, these witnesses were confusing the two events, mixing them up, and their testimonies did not agree with each other. Jesus' silence is extremely frustrating to the Sanhedrin. They know they're not getting anywhere toward their goal, and so Caiaphas abandons the subtle for the direct approach. Verse 61. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Several chapters back, Jesus had asked his disciples, What about you? He asked, Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Now Caiaphas uses identical wording. Uses the exact same words that Peter used in describing who Jesus was, and Caiaphas is asking, is this true? Are you the Messiah? And after remaining silent so far, Jesus chooses to respond. Matthew's version may give us a little bit more insight as to why he chose this particular moment to respond. Matthew 26, 63 says, The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the, Messiah, the Son of God. This appeal was made by the highest acknowledged authority of the nation and in the name of the Most High. He knew the result of his response, but he could not remain silent. Jesus said, had said to his disciples, Whoever acknowledges me before others... I will also acknowledge it before my Father in heaven. We'll come back to this thought in just a minute. Now was the time for Jesus to walk the walk. His response, verse 62, I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. That may or may not excite us, but let me paint a little context for you. Here Jesus is taking wording from two passages of Scripture, both very familiar to the Jews and both clearly referencing God. One is found in Psalms 110 and the other in Daniel 7. 110 verse 1, Psalm 110 verse 1 says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The quote of Daniel is from Daniel 7 verses 13 and 14. In my night vision... In, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Here, Jesus is clearly claiming that he will ultimately be all-powerful, have all authority, all dominion, all glory, and all will worship him. He is clearly claiming to be one with God. This statement ends all questions. Jesus is now clearly saying what we have known since the beginning of Mark's gospel, where he states in the very first verse that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. N.T. Wright writes this in his commentary. The answer says in a tight-packed phrase, yes, I am a true prophet. Yes, what I said about the temple will come true. Yes, I am the Messiah. You will see me vindicated. And my vindication will mean that I share the very throne of Israel's God. At last, the masks are off. The secrets are out. The cryptic sayings and parables are left behind. The Son of Man stands before the official ruler of Israel, declaring that God will prove him in the right and the court in the wrong. The response, verse 63, the high priest tore his clothes, which, by the way, was strictly prohibited in the Bible for a high priest to tear his clothes. Why do we need more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. Interestingly, while Jesus is being taunted to prophesy, their very acts are fulfilling prophecies given to Isaiah hundreds of years ago. Isaiah 53, 7 and 8, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he, opened, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet, who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was punished. In Isaiah 50, verse 6, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled, on, pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. The priest and the prophet. Before we finish that, that portion of the talk, let me real quick review some of the ironies we find between the priest and the prophet, or, or in this passage of, of the priest and the prophet. Guilty men are judging an innocent man who, in fact, is the only true judge. While mocked as a false prophet, prophecies given to Daniel and Isaiah are in the process of being fulfilled. A prophecy made by Jesus less than 24 hours ago is about to be fulfilled just a few yards away. Peter's lack of confession over something relatively insignificant, which we'll talk about in just a minute, just that he was just with him, no commitment, no belief, no call to action, no faith, just an association. But Peter failed that confession. Jesus, on the other hand, confesses his relationship with his father even though he knew 
it would cost him his life. And the final irony, as we'll read in a moment, when Peter claims not to know Jesus, he was in fact, at that point, telling the truth. Jesus, or Peter truly did not understand who Jesus was. On to part B, the traitor. When I say the word traitor, who do you think of? Judas? My mind goes to people like Benedict Arnold, American general during the American Revolution who switched allegiance to the British. It goes to Aldrich Ames, who spent 31 years working for the CIA before it was discovered that he was selling secrets to the Soviets for money. It goes to Judas Iscariot. We know that story from last week. But Peter, a traitor? Let's keep reading, verse 66. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene, Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow was one of them. Again, he denied it. After a while, those standing near said to Peter, surely you're one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the words Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. The rooster crows twice, and Peter weeps. Who among us can relate to the occasional discomfort of acknowledging that we are Christ followers. I mean, let's face it, we have it relatively easy. I think about my own life. As a kid, I went to public school. To be honest, I can't even remember the topic coming up, at least not my elementary school years. Junior high, it became a little bit tricky because I wanted to play sports. And most of the sports were played on Sabbath. And so I found a couple of sports I could participate in, track and field and tennis, where the tennis matches and the track and field meets were held after school, or occasionally even better, during school, <laughs> during the week. But occasionally I would have uh, occasions where a match would be on a Saturday afternoon or a, a track meet would be on a Saturday afternoon, and I would have to, have to explain to the coaches that I would not be attending. And I, so as I think back, that was uncomfortable for me to do. My junior and senior years, I went to boarding school, Seventh-day Adventist boarding school. And there were those, much to my shock, in attendance at the school that were probably not professing Christians, which I had not really expected that. But it still was easy to acknowledge that I was a Christ follower in my adult life. I work for a company that's owned by Christians. In fact, it's owned by Seventh-day Adventists. 
How hard can that be? They have a family statement which acknowledges the providence of God and our continued success. My wife Kay teaches at a Christian school. Most of my friends are found in this room. How difficult can it be for me to claim to be a Christian? I've got it pretty easy. I've got it pretty easy. And probably most of you do too. But in some parts of the U.S., in some parts of the world, claiming to be a Christian isn't as easy. In some places in the U.S., there are pockets where it may actually be very uncomfortable to claim that you're a Christian. In some parts of the world, claiming that you're a Christian could easily result in persecution and or death. So I wonder, with my position as a Christ follower rarely being tested, with those faith muscles which are rarely exercised, how would I respond if truly put to the test? On November 23rd, 1994, Michael W. Smith released a song entitled, This Is Your Time, on the heels of the Columbine shooting. There was a story circulated by witnesses that one student, Cassie Bernal, was asked by one of the gunmen if she believed in God. When Cassie said yes, she was shot to death. In commemorating this, that event, here are some of the words to the song. It was a test that we could all hope to pass, but none of us would want to take. Faced with a choice to deny God and live, for her, there was one choice to make. This was her time, this was her dance. She lived every moment, left nothing to chance. Dietrich Bonhoeffer lived during the Nazi regime, just before World War II. Even though a German, he was a Christian, actively opposed to the Nazi regime, actively opposed to Hitler and what was happening to the Jews. Outwardly, uh, he, he spoke out against that often. He wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship, which portrays the thought that Jesus says, come, I will give you an abundant life, but it will cost you everything. In fact, one quote from his book says it this way. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. I've told the story before, but it's kind of fun. Junior high student on the phone with his young love, professing his dedication and loyalty. I'd climb the highest mountain for you. I'd cross the raging sea. I'd wander through the wildest desert and cross the densest forest. But I can't come over right now. It's raining. <laughs> Are we well prepared to die for Christ? But we're not nearly as well prepared to be inconvenienced. The U.S., we may experience occasional discomfort, other parts of the world, imprisonment, and death. Back to the Matthew 10, 32 quote, whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. Peter had forsaken a life of costly discipleship for one of safe observation. Are we willing to say, I have been with Jesus? Are we willing to say, I am one of his disciples? 
Judas and Peter both betrayed Jesus. Jesus' love and grace was extended and available to both. Last week, we saw the tragic ending to the refusal of Judas to respond favorably to the call of Jesus. But there's a different ending for Peter. Not recorded in the book of Mark, but it is found in John's gospel. Just so we don't end on a bad note, let's take a look at that one. John 21, 15. When they had finished eating, this is after the resurrection. They were, set the stage a little bit. They were, they were out fishing. Jesus was on the shore. They didn't know it was Jesus. And they, Jesus called to them. Their nets were overflowing with the catch after they listened to what Jesus told them to do. They were coming to shore. Peter was the first to recognize Jesus, jumps out of the boat and runs ashore. And then they all finally get to shore. They sit around and eat. And now we pick up the story. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands. Someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter went on in life and was ultimately crucified. At least that's what the records say. Not the biblical record, but there are other records of that era to talk about Peter being crucified and unwilling to be crucified in the same manner that his Lord and Savior was, he chose to be crucified upside down. We believe that Mark's gospel is really Peter's words. Whether Peter actually told it to him, whether there were notes, we believe that Mark and Peter spent a lot of time together. Acts tells us that. So Peter is really telling his own story of failure here. He tells a story about being self-assured, presumptuous, impulsive, cutting the ear off of somebody, fleeing when the tough got going, denying Jesus when it was uncomfortable. By the time the Gospel of Mark is published, Peter is well-known. He is a well-known and well-respected leader in the early Christian church. What the Gospel of Mark reveals is the rest of the story. Once again, the real story is about Jesus, his love and his grace that are available to us all. And the real message of Peter to us is, see how I failed, but see how Jesus loved. How will you respond? Michael W. Smith continues his song with these words. What if tomorrow and what if today, faced with the question, oh, what would you say? 
This is your time. This is your dance. Make every moment. Leave nothing to chance. Father, we just ask that when we are called on to claim you as our Savior, when we are called on to say that, yes, we spend time with you, when we are called on to say, yes, we are Christ followers, may your Spirit work in our hearts to the point that we will know the ready answer to that, and that is a resounding yes. To that end, we dedicate our lives in Jesus' name. Amen.